When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SCP-6500 Inevitable Part 6 An anomalous force was destroying anomalies across existence, all due to the SCP Foundation containing and categorizing said anomalies. The Foundation in turn looked to two different options to solve this. The first being to use four unique artifacts to slow down or halt 6500 entirely. The second option, as a bit more drastic of a choice, was to simply dissolve the Foundation, nullifying 6500. This drastic decision, affecting the entire world, came down to the vote of 13 individuals in a closed room, and ultimately it came down to one vote specifically. This vote caused what is called a critical pivot in time, a branching of a timeline, with one of the new timelines being less stable than the others, eventually leading to its destruction. The Temporal Anomalies Department of the Foundation has been tasked with observing both timelines to determine which is which. In the last part, we looked at two paths from the Dissolution Timeline one in which we observed the meeting of various groups of interest that formed a new organization, Vanguard, and another in which a temporal agent visited the Vanguard timeline and saw how well they were doing. In the alternate timeline, we looked at a path where a number of Foundation agents learned what the Council had done and decided to form their own organization to spread knowledge of anomalies to the world, called Threshold. There's one last path to look at, from the Threshold Timeline, the Path of the Warlock. The Path of the Warlock begins in a great desert, as a woman awakes as from a deep sleep, her lungs ragged and her muscles aching. The woman is Udo Okori, from the Path of the Warrior, and the desert she's in is located in Korbenik the fantastical afterlife featured in SCP-2922. The first thing she saw was the moon, which was far too big. The second thing she saw was her body, which was naked aside from her lab coat. The third thing she saw was a second moon, followed by a third. She knows she's in Korbenik, but being here would mean that she was, in fact, dead. She finds her glasses in her coat pocket, but discovers that the lenses are now made of plastic. She then hears a rhythmic thumping, and turns to see a kangaroo bouncing towards her. She had read the low-clearance parts of the Corbinic file a few years back, so she knows that this thing is a flame-bearer, a creature that holds an indeterminable amount of fire in its pouch. The creature approaches her, peers down with judgmental black eyes, and then reaches into its pouch, 
She reaches for her own pouch containing magical reagents before realizing that it was missing, and the creature withdraws its paw and opens it. It was empty, and the flame bearer stares morosely at its own empty paw for a few moments before turning and loping away again. Okori decides that she has no reason not to, so she begins to follow it. Elsewhere, at Foundation Mission Control at Area 08, Director Richard Barnard asked if there were any changes with SCP-179, the entity near the solar system. The use of the four artifacts to stop the impasse had brought 179 out of her fetal position more than a week ago, but she had immediately began pointing at Earth, signifying some sort of threat was associated with our planet. She was still doing so, but there wasn't any mystery about what she was exactly pointing at. She was pointing at the Foundation, as they had caused the impasse. Everybody at the Foundation knew that they had caused it, although they didn't know how they knew this, but they were perplexed as to why she was still pointing if the impasse had ceased. A loud beep from the control console interrupts Barnard, and they see that SCP-2578-D has popped up on their systems. 2578-D is a drone spacecraft in the form of a horseshoe crab, controlled by the Three Moons Initiative, the human organization located on Korbenik. They used the drone to assassinate fascist dictators, and although it had disappeared during the impasse, it had now reappeared, with the Foundation suspecting that it had activated some sort of cloaking mechanism. It was now currently pointing its weaponry at Site-01, but it then sent a message to the Foundation. The message reads, Foundation, you will allow me to congratulate you on the successful resolution of the recent pan-multiversal crisis which you alone precipitated. I believe I speak for all other affected parties when I say we're sure you did the right thing for you yourselves personally. On the back of this triumph, I am pleased to offer you a second opportunity slash obligation to clean up a mess of your own making. Whilst engaged in unlikely superheroics, agents of your organization have deposited one warlock and one eldritch abomination within the temporarily mortal bounds of the multi-sovereign plains of Korbenik. I would like to ask you kindly to remove them at your earliest convenience, but will instead ask you harshly, do the thing, but fast, or we will laser literally all of you. If you can't get them both, the Eldritch Abomination is basically 99% of the issue here. We have enough of those already, and we like ours much better. You are watched, you are protected, you are in deep shit, my son. Gerard Niang, President, Don't Make Us Fourth Moon You Prematurely Initiative. P.S. Literally all of you refers to the Foundation and the O5 Council, not what you erroneously think of as the entire human race. We're not that variety of monsters. You still have the O5 Council, right? Are there still 12 of you? 
We've heard rumors of a 13th, and maybe even a 14th. Zeroeth? But you've never returned our mailers. As a reminder, this message is referring to Okori as the Warlock, and the Hanged King as the Eldritch Abomination. At the end of the Path of the Warrior, Okori got separated from Ibanez and Placeholder, and tumbled through a door into Korbenik along with the Hanged King. Curious that the Three Moons Initiative can't handle the Hanged King on their own, but now SCP-179 was pointing directly at the drone. Back in Korbenik, Okori was slowly following the Flamebearer, having lost all sense of time as they moved across the Great Desert. She was still pondering how she was here, as she doesn't remember dying, but it seems she also doesn't remember the events in Alagada. She was also perplexed as to why she had her lab coat and her glasses, when you normally arrive completely nude in Korbenik. She guesses that this means that Korbenik was also affected by the impasse, which isn't surprising, as they had lost contact with Korbenik months ago. The Flamebearer looked back at her occasionally, which reassured her, and she noted that they were moving in the direction of a strange black cloud she had seen upon awakening. She thinks to herself, what a strange trip she's been on. From Turkey, to the Wanderer's Library, and then she suddenly remembers everything that happened. She remembers running through the palace of Alagada while the Hanged King was in pursuit, and remembers how she had saved her friends while dooming herself. She remembers her wards failing and seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, and she remembers bringing the Hanged King to Korbenik. She opens her eyes just as she's about to bump into the stopped Flamebearer, who is looking down at her with an expression of intense concentration. It shuddered and took a step back before its head burst briefly into brilliant flame. Okori heard a voice in her head saying, Behind, as the kangaroo staggered to its knees. She didn't want to look, so the voice continued, telling her to face the facts and to look upon her truth and accept it. She finally turns around, seeing a figure swaddled in an immaculate white cloak slowly approaching her. The figure is the White Lord of Alagada, who came here along with the Hanged King. She felt certain that she could outrun it, but also certain that it wouldn't matter. The voice droned in her head, saying that it can wait, it is the end, and the end is inevitable. The Flamebearer gives her a sympathetic glance before bouncing off again, so she continues after it. At Site-19, Delfina Ibanez was looking at the damage that had occurred here, both from an attack by the Foundation Elimination Coalition, as well as the horrors of the impasse. She walked on a path from the helipad, noting that the gravel still carried traces of black or red spray paint, and pondered the slogan, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle. She makes her way into the director's office, where Tilda Moose was working. Moose immediately asks her when she's going to Alagada, to which Ibanez responds that she doesn't like Italian food. 
Moose doesn't care for the joke, however, and says that Ibanez is heading to Site 91 to tell Dr. Okori's parents what happened to her. And then, when she thinks no one is looking, she's going to head into the Tower of London to head to Aligata, which is exactly what happens at the end of the Path of the Warrior. Moose says that it's Ibanez's nature to play the hero, and she's not trying to ruin her plans, but rather has a few suggestions to make. Back in the Great Desert, Okori continued to walk and walk, with no need for sleep and no passing of day into night, so she could have been walking for weeks for all she knows. There was no need for her to eat, drink, or rest, just to continue following the flame bearer and keep ahead of her pursuer. The White Lord spoke again into her mind, telling her that, alternatively, she could stand and face him, as all things must pass, all motion must cease, and she is but an interval. She turns back to look at him briefly, noting that he was neither gaining ground nor falling behind, and when she turned forward again, she was startled by the presence of her father in front of her. He was standing nude, ankle-deep in sand, looking at her with eyes filled with sorrow. She steps forward and asks how and why he's here, desperately hoping that he wasn't actually dead. He smiles at her and says that he's fine, and has regular checkups with the site physician, as her mother wouldn't have it any other way. She's relieved as tears begin pouring out, and she asks how he's in Corbinic and why. He points over her shoulder at the figure and says that they should walk and talk, so the two continue following the flame bearer. Her father tells her that he came here to pass on a message from Ibanez, who is coming here to collect her. Okori laughs and wipes away her tears, saying that of course she is. Her father tells her that something followed her here, and there's been something of a diplomatic incident between the Foundation and Corbinic because of it. Okori cringes, but asks what she can do about it, as she has no reagents and she's no match for it. Her father squeezes her shoulder tightly and tells her that if there's one thing she is, it's a match. These bastards cloud up around her, she'll burn them clean away. Elsewhere, Ibanez steps through the portal into Aligata, ending up on a grassless, blasted hillock, gazing at a turbulent sky of charcoal gray and pus yellow. A vulgar metropolis of black and gold spread across the plain below, pulling the dead soil tight like a scab on the skin, an ocean of opaque jet surrounding it. She smelled burning roses and boiling blood, a voice sings out, a jaundiced firmamental potion unmixed into an oil-black ocean. She asks if that's plagiarized, but the voice simply responds, paraphrased. Ibanez stood and removed her mask, which normally isn't possible in Aligata, informing her that magic hasn't wholly returned here yet. She throws the tragedy mask aside and reaches down to check that her gun was still with her, which it was, but she was startled by what she was wearing. 
She was in a dress, shimmering saffron and glittering gold, with a high neckline and a low split hem, and she shuddered at the incomparably silky smoothness of it. She didn't like wearing dresses, as she preferred to attract attention with her actions alone, and this reminded her of how dangerous Alagata could be as one got lost in sensations and pleasures. The Kevlar backpack she had gone in with was also changed, into a red linen bag with a silver brocade, although it still contained everything she had brought with. The voice says that that's the thing people don't understand about corruption, as not all rot savors sour. He learned as much, to his sorrow and ours. It continues, saying, What brutal beast beneath this tree was changed by sudden gravity? Ibanez turns and sees a tree, or what once was a tree. It was blackened and bent, leafless and plastered with wreaths of nasty white thorns. A long red rusted chain hung from the broadest branch, failing to sway in the wind. The voice muses that it's the key to the city's fate, and the key to the city's gate. Ibanez asks if it's speaking literally, and it responds by telling her to dig in the dead earth where she arrived. She left behind quite the impression, as it imagines she often does. She proceeds to dig her boot into the bleached soil where she had been sitting, and she saw a dull glint, so she kicked the object out. The object was a key, and it stank like a septic wound. The voice explains that the people shun this place, or most of them do, as it chuckled. Ibanez looked back at the tree and saw that it was now entirely filled with black-eyed crows, glaring silently down at her as she started to descend the crumbling hill. Okori had made it out of the Great Desert, now in a glimmering sea of gel known as the Gelate Wastes. She was glad to have her father here, although his plan was lunacy, and she shuddered to imagine how she might set it in motion. Her father says that it was a brave thing she did, drawing the Hanged King away from her friends, possibly the bravest thing he's ever heard of anyone doing. She shrugs and responds that, without magic, she'll die, and if they didn't make it home, there wouldn't have been any more magic, so it was simple. She then pauses and shakes her head, correcting herself to say that she was brave. Her father laughs and asks if she knows why it worked. She shakes her head, and the figure behind them tells her that her father knows, and he knows, and in time she will know too. The past is dead, the present is dying, so release them and embrace her empty future. She waves dismissively at the figure and says that she doesn't like this guy. Her father was trying and failing to hold on to his smile, and says that the Hanged King should have been attracted to the sword, like the ambassador was, as it was the only font of magic in Alagada, but he followed Okori instead. He says that it should have been like to a moth to the sword's flame, 
but perhaps he sensed a brighter flame. He's interrupted as the gelatin in front of them shifted suddenly, and the flame bearer stops, shooting them a meaningful look. Okori waves a hand at it, and asks if this is where they get off, before turning back to look at the White Lord. The Lord says that she didn't need to wait for him, as he's nothing if not patient. The flame bearer begins to slowly sink into the muck, yelping in pain. Okori staggered towards it, digging into her pockets for some of the sand from the desert, thinking it might just do the trick as a magical reagent. Her father, however, brushes the sand away and tells her that she doesn't need it, and to just make the motions and call down the magic. The White Lord was definitely getting closer, so she begins casting a spell, pressing her hands to the flame bearer's snout. The creature's head sets ablaze, and it rears back to shout, Arise, O Lord beneath! The gel rose up around the flame bearer, and it was gone, as the wastes began shifting madly back and forth, walls of jelly smashing against their legs. Okori fell to her knees as a massive wave of the substance reared up over the White Lord, He says that it's only a minor setback, geologically speaking, as the wave crashes over him. Something explodes behind Okori as a hail of gel hits her back. She hears her father say in a very small voice that that's something, and against all reason, she rolls over to see what it was. Over in Alagata, Ibanez is standing in front of the Gate of Traitors, and asks the voice if she walks through here, won't she end up back in London, as that's how doors work in Alagada. The voice says that only closed doors work like that, and not gates, because gates are special. There were no guards here, and no portcullis, just a gate leading into the black city of Alagada, The lock was far, far larger than her key, and she felt positively idiotic sticking it in there, but does so anyway. She turns the key and puts it back into her pack, stepping back as the gates swing open and a pair of hands spread wide, beckoning her to enter. The voice says, Home sweet home, and Ibanez curses as she looks out over the scene in Alagada. She had expected the spires of dark stone flecked with gold, the black banners woven with symbols she couldn't read in colors she couldn't identify, the hint of a tune that was fascinatingly foreign and intimately familiar and maddeningly elusive. She had expected the way the walls and cobbles pulled away from her, the odor of rot and vigor, and the masquerade, but she had not expected the massacre. Mask-wearing Alagadans were everywhere, lying in the street, slumped over in shadowed alleys, face down in reflectionless reflecting pools, or simply sitting down, holding their masks to their faces like they needed them to breathe. The voice tells her that the living are lost, and death comes for the dead. 
Ibanez begins to respond, but the voice interrupts her, telling her that it can hear her thoughts, and the others can't hear him, asking her if she wants them to think her mad. She shrugs and thinks that a little madness goes a long way to blending in in Alagada. The voice says that there is madness, and then there is foolishness. Ibanez proceeded to pick her way through the mass of twisting bodies, wishing she had kept her own mask. Every face she looked at turned away, every mask was wet with tears, or blood, or vomit, and every pair of eyes was haunted or rimmed with red. She asks the voice what's wrong with them, and it says nothing which has not always been so. The glamour is fading, the scales are falling from their eyes, and they are laid bare before themselves. Alagada is peopled with the memory of people, the spaces left behind when what makes a man a man is dead. The remains which remain, bereft of the curses, they are nothing at all. She continues on, wishing she was wearing something that didn't sweep the ground. She asks about the curses, and the voice explains that the first curse was magic, the curse which binds us all. The second curse is theirs alone, the reward they reap for their righteous treason. Deeper in the city, she began passing by the occasional Alagadin walking along, each one holding their mask to their face and whimpering softly. She asks the voice why the masks are so important, and it says that masks are protection for themselves and for others. They don't want to know what they look like, and they don't want her to know. It chuckles again and says perhaps they're afraid that there's nothing left to look at. Ibanez thinks that they ought to get on with it, like ripping off a band-aid. The voice asks if her friend will feel the same way. It asks her what she knows about Okori, about why she is the way she is. Ibanez stops in the middle of the street, suddenly feeling exposed in her outrageous dress and unmasked face, so she ducks into a colonnaded sidewalk before continuing. She tells the voice that Okori is a natural-born type blue, literally a whiz kid. Her father studies thomic gunk, her mother was with the serpent's hand before she turned foundation mage. Magic rubbed off in the womb, and if her parents hadn't been researchers, she would have ended up in a box. The voice laughed and says that she might end up there yet, when the truth outs. Ibanez angrily asks out loud what truth, but she's interrupted by a gloved hand closing over her mouth as another hand pulls her by the waist deeper into the shadows. She catches a glimpse of a long white beak and beady glass eyes before the last lingering light slips away. Back in Corbinic, Dr. Okori was now looking at an entity resembling an octopus. In fact, it was an eight-story tall translucent octopus, containing a seven-story tall translucent octopus, containing a six-story tall translucent octopus, and so on. 
six of its tentacles dipped down into the gelatin, shifting the landscape as they moved, while the other two were free, stretching away to practical infinity. The octopus spoke in a high and whining tone, asking who summoned it. Okori glanced at her father before introducing themselves to the creature. It announces that it is the Eight Liege, the afterjudge of the Moliscari, the prince of Sunken Crepusk. It then says its true name, which Okori describes as something she's heard no less than three toddlers speak before, but decides she shouldn't mention this. She tells the Eight Liege that she comes from a wretched, benighted realm, where even the light of one so immensely immense as itself cannot reach. She attempted to stand up, deciding not to curtsy as she didn't trust the length of her lab coat. The creature claps its two free tentacles together and says that that was great, as it always wanted to do the fancy speech thing. Okori smiles and makes a reference to Ben Johnson, the playwright, which the Eight Liege confuses for Ben Johnson, the sprinter. She smiles more and asks if the three of them are cool, to which it responds that, of course they're cool, why wouldn't they be? Okori and her father shrug, and the Eight Liege says that it's because of the giant octopus thing. It explains a rule of thumb for Korbenik. You'll know you're not cool with someone when they straight up murder you, as afterlives with near-instant regeneration are great for people being very honest and explicit with their feelings. Okori responds that she'd rather not test the regeneration during the death of magic. The octopus asks if they have the death of magic where they're from, and if they don't, give it a pass, as it's playing merry hell with its sinuses. There used to be a thaumaturgic membrane, keeping all the gel from going up its nose when it breathed, which was part of being banished underground for a couple weeks while not actually being tortured. Okori looks down at the gel and swears she saw the refracted silhouette of the flamebearer, bounding downward into the depths. She asks why the octopus was banished, but it doesn't remember something to do with interpantheonic intrigue and backstabbing. Their avatars duked it out, and somebody gets sent to the depths of the gelate wastes to ruminate on his or her failures. It wonders if the terms are up yet, and asks if they heard from those Lunar Dawn guys recently. Okori interprets this as the Three Moons Initiative, as they haven't been called the Lunar Dawn for a long, long time. They seem to have forgotten about the Eight Liege, which angers it, and it says it has half a mind to go give them what for in their sky fortress, although it might take it a century or two, as six of its limbs are still stuck. Okori's father, however, says that he knows someone who can help with that. In Alagada, after being dragged into an alley, Ibanez asks her attacker what he's doing here, in not-so-polite words. This causes her attacker to back off, asking her if they are acquainted. It was swaddled in robes of every possible color, and perhaps a few impossible ones, 
and says that he heard her racket in the street, deduced she wasn't a local, and thought it prudent to warn her that she walks into a plague zone. Ibanez snorts and responds that, sure, she's going to trust him about plagues, and bets that he's got a cure that's most effective. The creature squawks and recoils, raising a mottled hand to its face. He asks where she collected that vile turn of phrase. Ibanez reconsiders her initial assumptions and says that they've had experience with someone like him from where she's from, referring to SCP-049. The creature shakes his head and says that he's not very like him at all, and if they're speaking of the same individual, he deeply regrets her misfortune. That one arose from and occupies a place of great dishonor. They do not speak of him. The creature then drew himself up to his full height, easily towering over her, and introduced himself as Ikis the Wayward, Wandsman of Kulmanas, Scholar from Beyond, Pursuer of Mysteries and Wonderment, Trapped in this gilded cage by the Great Dispersal. Ibanez nods and infers that he means the impasse, and he says yes, and he thought her aura seemed familiar. He gently grabs her by the shoulders and says that they have more pressing business to attend to in the here and now. He doesn't know why she came to this place, but if her goal is the palace, her way is twice shut by the yellow and red lords. The voice from before pops back into her head and says that they'll just have to murder them. Ickis fished out a second, smaller beaked mask and pressed a talon deep into it, causing a sudden spark and a rush of incense. He tells her that the way forward is coated in miasma most foul, and if they are to progress, she'll need this. It should also make her less obtrusive, as one should not go unadorned in Alagada, lest one draw attention. As they headed back out into the street, she was distracted by the sickly sweet scent and saw a thin yellow mist on the cobbles, wending in and out of sewer grates carved with scenes of orgiastic chaos through splintered doors and shattered windows and into the gaping mouths of masqueraders gasping on the ground. Hunched figures in black robes moved door to door, waving wrought iron censers and further deepening the mist, wearing golden masks and bearing gleeful expressions. She asks Ickis what they're doing, as one of the figures pulled a man wearing half a shattered mask onto the sidewalk and pressed the censer to his face, causing his flesh to sizzle. The man breathed deep, began shivering, fell to his knees with a sickening crack of bone, and soiled his clothes. Ickis explained that this is the domain of the Yellow Lord, who has decreed that if death has come to Alagada, it will remain on his terms only. He and his dissonance are racing the Reaper with their noxious fumes. The voice chimes in to say that he always did know how to clear a room. Ickis can't hear the voice, but looks at her, saying that there is something about her aura. 
He thought she was like Narvaez of the Foundation, yet there is a distinctly Alagadan aspect to her now and then. She shrugs and asks where they're going, as the street they were on began to slope downwards so that she could see a massive jet rotunda in a circular plaza ahead. The mist was thickest here, flowing out in great gaudy plumes, whipped by the wind that roared from the heights. Ickis hissed out that they're going to the Odeon. In the jellied waste, the octopus was rambling on about the location where the Three Moons Initiative kept their huge space portal thingy, while Okori asked her father what she is. Her father says that she knows what she is, a child of magic. She angrily responds that she's a child of Obi and Anjali Okori, as far as she knows, and that doesn't explain why she can do magic with her bare hands. He asks her if they need to do this right this minute, as who knows when their friend is going to climb back out after being overwhelmed by the gel. The White Lord speaks faintly in her head, saying, eventually, but she ignores it, and says that she needs to know as she's tired of waiting. She's always known something was wrong, as his story doesn't add up. Ilsa Reinders was exposed to more esoteric gunk than both of her parents combined, and she isn't some human unicorn. She wants the truth right now, or they might as well wait for the man in white to catch up. Her father says that her mother was a hell of a catch for the Foundation, though not quite as much as she was for him. She was a Serpent's Hand librarian, familiar with some tiny, immeasurably small percentage of the library's collection, which meant that she knew more books of magic than the Foundation even knew existed. She even knew something of the Anethium of Severed Tongues, how to get there, and what they might find. It's a library in Alagada, one they thought was fairly safe. They were engaged to be married when he went through the gate into Alagada with his armed escort, with her having to stay behind as they didn't trust her yet. They emerged in the Anethium, with him thinking that Alagada knows what you want when you enter, or perhaps it knows where you'll do the most harm, or where the most harm will come to you. He was inches from his prize, a book whose name he can't remember now, when he saw her, and he was ruined. She was short, about as tall as Ibanez, with smooth, dark skin and long, curled black hair. She had amber eyes he could see from behind her mask, and he never ended up retrieving the book. The Foundation pulled him out of Alagada three days later along with the rest of the escort, all spent and stark raving mad. When he came to his senses, he told Anjali everything, and she was very clinical about it. She told him what that place did to the mind, the body, and the soul. She had known that something like this could happen, was likely to happen, but she hoped that it wouldn't. He only saw the other woman one more time, when she came to their home and delivered his daughter to him. Dr. Okori didn't feel like screaming, 
or weeping or wailing or gnashing her teeth. Mostly, she felt tired, so she placed a hand on her father's shoulder and asked what she was. He says she was Alagadin, but he doesn't know more than that. She gave him a moment, but all he could manage was a sad, stuttering sound. She squeezed his shoulder and nodded through the tears she hadn't realized she'd been crying, saying that she was a demon by any other name. In Alagada, Ikus declines to enter the theater known as the Odeon, promising instead to watch Ibanez's back. She was amenable, as the ramparts of the Odeon were filled with the same gold-masked figures they'd seen prowling the streets, and she didn't fancy meeting one up close. The broad oak doors were wide open, the encircling foyer beyond devoid of both life and smog. She stepped onto the rich saffron carpet, which emitted small clouds of yellow, deflected by the incense in her mask. She looked at the rows of soaring columns, following them up and up before forcing her eyes back down, as there was no ceiling. She thinks to herself that this whole city is a trap, and the voice tells her to mind her step. She reaches for her service weapon as she crosses the hall to the next set of open doors, with an inscription written over them. She couldn't read it at first, but the Alagadan letters melted into English, and it read, True art is suffering. She thinks that they'd have an easier time defining what isn't a cognito hazard here, and a different voice says that if she's worried about the state of her mind, she came to the wrong city-state. She hears a tremendous atonal crash, followed by another, and then an only technically musical pattering of notes in frantic discord as she walked in. The theater space was a cavern of wood and yellow curtains, moldering with black. She had expected it to be empty, but nearly every seat was filled, with thousands of Alagonans staring at the performer on stage, their eye and mouth holes clotted with bile, pus, and blood. Many of them were unmoving, while many more were shuddering, coughing, sneezing, and weeping. Gold-masked attendants walked the aisles, pressing the uncongealed matter back into the masks to a litany of strangled protests. The voice tells her to stay her no-doubt appreciative hand, as applause is forbidden in Alagada. The yellow carpet was virtually spotless, with no mist, and the air in the theater was instead filled with raucous unmusic pouring from a tremendous black piano on the stage, where a figure in flaxen robes hammered madly at the keys. Its hands were covered by its bunched-up robes, and it was slamming into the piano with fists or picking out the anti-melody with mummified fingertips. The voice asks her if she believes in the virology of ideas. She starts walking down the aisle and tells the voice that if it's talking about memetics, she knows enough to get by. The voice, identified as the Yellow Lord, laughs and says that there was poison in the world before the first word, but the first word heralded the Poisoner's Golden Age. 
Ibanez was getting a headache as she continued down the aisle. The Yellow Lord asks her if she knows what Golgotha means, explaining that it means cranium or skull. It asks her if she can feel the crucifixion nails in her brain and sense the betrayal of her senses. Ibanez then draws her pistol and fires three shots into the piano on stage, cutting off the music abruptly. The Yellow Lord says that it didn't know she played, but she says, enough with the BS, and tells it to give her its key. The Yellow Lord laughs again, and tells her that it already gave it to her, asking her if she can't feel it worming around in her brain. She interrupts him by hopping up on the stage, and says no more metaphors or scary stories. She demands he give her the key, the literal piece of metal that fits in a literal lock, and she won't have to cancel his perverted recital. The Yellow Lord drifts away from the piano, and asks what's her poison, if not music or words. It cocks its head to one side, and says that it has settled on boils, or perhaps boiling. Ibanez shrugs and tells it to do its worst, as disease is meaningless where she comes from. It asks if she's touched, as she has spent too much time in Alagada, and disease is a language universal. She sits down on the piano stool and leans back, telling the Lord that it's been trapped here a long time, so she guesses it doesn't know. Her earth is gripped by a disease that never ends, eating them away day by day, and they don't care. They go about their business, not worrying about getting sick or about getting other people sick, and they pretend like it isn't happening because they're bored with it. The Yellow Lord wavers in the air and says that this is a theater of music, and if it's comedy she wants, try the Agonium or the Globe. Ibanez chuckles and says the globe is right, a global pandemic, and they can't be bothered to give a crap, not about themselves as they know they're invincible, and not about others because they're not them. Disease holds no meaning when you're touched in the head like they are. She leans forward and says that they once imagined a world without disease, and they could have had it, but they found something better. Apathy. The original voice returns and says that words are like a virus. They get inside and eat you up. The Yellow Lord shudders and looks around frantically for the source of the voice, but a thick black ooze began pouring out of the Lord's eyes and mouth. It plummeted to the stage and struck like a burlap sack full of rotten produce, its brilliant robes stained sable. She tells the voice that it works slow but it responds that rot is a process, not an event. She stood up and began hitting the keys on the piano, finding a dead one. She then took a leg off of the bench and smashed it down on the dead key, revealing a metal key in the wreckage. Okori, meanwhile, was in the process of casting another spell without magical reagents, tracing a sigil in the air. There was a rush of wind, a scattering of gel balls, and a pleasant whooshing beneath her lab coat. She continued by drawing a ring around the giant octopus, 
then a series of jagged lines beneath, and another bifurcated circle. This caused a deep rumbling in the earth, and the eight liege began to rise. It happily says that it has never flown before, as it is unlicensed, but Okori assures it that the air traffic controllers have bigger fish to fry today, glancing at the black gloom in the distance. She continues her spell, ripping the octopus free from the gel entirely, and it continued to rise. Okori marveled at the ease with which she had held the massive octopus afloat, and it let down some tentacles to let Okori and her father climb up. Her spell was holding even without her concentration, and she couldn't even begin to comprehend what she had done. They were heading to the Three Moons Initiative Fortress known as Dichotomy, while the White Lord continued to speak into her mind, taunting her that she was close to the final revelations. Back in Alagada, Ibanez and Ikus had continued on to the gate of the Sanguine Quarter, home of the Red Lord. Here he plans on leaving her, and she thanks him for the help. He responds that he may yet save these benighted souls with their persecutor absent. He can feel the mystic airs returning here, day by day, but there is time enough to do right, and he must set to it. He then tells her that if she means to confront the lord of this place, whoever or whatever that presently may be, he would give her one final warning. He once had the misfortune to attend a performance of the Hanged King's Tragedy, and he is cursed to remember each word that was spoken. He then recites a particular section that may serve to gird her for the struggles ahead. In the passage, the ambassador says, He is our lord, but lieges greater still, reside beneath our feet, and long to sup on mortal hearts emboldened by the lie that there exists a thing we call free will. The king responds, You might be driven thither with one clap, so test me, and decline to shut your trap. I'll open mine. Ibanez frowns, but nods anyways, telling him that she'll keep that in mind. He tells her to take care that she leave this place better than when she found it, which is not a high bar to clear, but perhaps more difficult than she imagines. She shakes his hand, and walks through the villain's gate into the sanguine quarter. After leaving him, the voice cheerfully calls Ikus an optimistic idiot. Ibanez remarks on the coward finally speaking, looking at the golden paved streets and ruby windows, but the voice says that perhaps it just doesn't like doctors, as it's had several decades worth of bad experience. She says that it gave as good as it gots, she hears. The sanguine quarter seems abandoned, its doors shut and its streets empty of the half-corpses littering the rest of the city. She asks the voice where everyone is, and it responds that they're inside. When she asks inside what, it just says that she'll see. She then makes her way down the central boulevard, which leads to a mammoth structure of gilded bloodwood, the heart of a plaza with countless other streets running to and fro. 
It looked for all the world like a brothel. She preemptively tells the voice to shut up, but it says that it was only going to say that she's well-dressed for the occasion. Okori, on the other hand, was soaring through the skies of Corbinic on the back of a massive octopus creature, savoring the staggeringly beautiful view. She could see all of Corbinic stretched out before her as a flat plain of gorgeous nonsense. Mile-high apes, a mountain piercing the clouds like an angry fist, a throbbing sea of gunk and gristle ebbing into an almost motionless gray-green river, a colossal stone cube surrounded by a mass of indistinguishable human figures cavorting obscenely with one another. She desperately wanted to know more about it all, but the White Lord spoke in her mind, telling her that she is the student today, and the student doesn't choose the lessons. It was now following them again with ease, gliding along the endless tentacle towards them. She asks her father how he got here, although the fact that he had brushed the question aside the first time had filled her with dread. He tells her that they have ways and means, and she knows that he can't tell her everything. Suddenly, two high-tech aircraft blew past them, the rush of air nearly knocking them off. The planes had blue lanterns hanging in front of their cockpits, as they were built in the image of anglerfish. She says to her father that they're in what you might call a strenuous situation, and a little clarity would go a long way. He says that they have only one way of reaching Corbinic, and it's not terrific. It's called Procedure 42 Humbaba, and it involves putting perfectly healthy people into comas. She's shocked that he would let them put him into a coma at his age, but he says that he asked them to do it. Corbinick has a way of making you face the things you've done and the mistakes you've made, so nobody else could be sure of meeting her in the desert. He hadn't told her something she deserved to hear, and this let him tell her what she needs to know. He continues by saying that they have MTFs over here, but no contact with them. There's a phone app that they can use to communicate, but Okori didn't take her phone with her to Alagada. This is the only way she gets home, and that's all that matters to him. The Three Moons Initiative can bore holes through the whole damn foundation, so long as he knows that she and her mother are safe. She finally looked at him, and tells him not to take any more risks, and maybe she'll forgive him. He promises but eventually they come up to the floating crystal citadel, listing to one side as the mass of black that was part of the Hanged King strangled it. The two aircraft were pelting the cloud with barrages of rainbow-hued light to no success. Her father mutters that perhaps there will be one more risk. Ibanez, however, was heading into the brothel, opening the maple door which let out a rush of thin red liquid pooling around her boots. Her first thought was that it was blood, but her second thought was more sensible. Wine. There was a stirring in the candlelit murk inside, and the Red Lord spoke, 
telling her to cross the threshold and shut the door as she's letting all the claret out. Ibanez stepped in, but didn't close the door all the way, as that would kick her out of Alagada when she tried to leave. The floor was paneled with massive redwood boards, as though the better part of California had been chopped down to finish this single tremendous space. There was a polished bar as long as her gaze could travel, hundreds of upright tables, hundreds more upside down on top of them or flat against the wine-dark floor, shattered glass and porcelain everywhere, scattered barrels and tablecloths and chairs. The ceiling was a mirror of the floor, aside from the clutter, although Ibanez watched as a single fork fell down from above her. She now saw the Red Lord, seated on the far end of the building, at a large round table with a stained red cloth. A mountain of slowly leaking barrels was piled up behind him, and his grinning mask beamed at her as she approached. He asks her if she's come for the fun, and says that he wishes she'd come earlier. Ibanez sticks her leg out provocatively from her dress, and says that drinking alone hardly suits his reputation. The Red Lord laughs, calling her a delectable little ball of curves and muscle, and says that maybe he should let her take her pent-up energy out on him, although it's possible only he would enjoy it. Ibanez flips over an upended chair and sits down, telling the Lord that she's very particular who she parties with. The Red Lord says that the Jubilee is ended in Alagada, and across the realms of men and madness both. He asks her what she is, as she looks human, but he's seen double. Ibanez grins at him lasciviously and says that she's human, and asks about him, where it counts. The Red Lord laughs again and says that he has his weaknesses. Wine, women, song, and then asks if she's been to the Odeon. He had tickets, but then he also had standards. Ibanez laughs as well, and asks if those standards extend to his cellar, as she wouldn't mind a drink, assuming that it's wine and not blood. The Red Lord staggers to his invisible feet and responds that it's wine, but that doesn't mean it isn't also blood. She asks where he found enough blood, and he smirks, saying that surely she already has the answer, causing her to think of the silent streets outside. She responds that she doesn't suppose he has anything which started out life on a vine. He shrugs and says he runs an equitable establishment, so there's sure to be weaker spirits in stock for weaker spirits like hers. She finds a bottle of Chateau Lafitte 1787 behind the bar and says that he wasn't joking. She sits back down and rips the top off the bottle, asking if they're going to toast to his health. The Red Lord glares at her and says that she wants something, whoever she is, and he's not the giving sort. He takes, and he takes that which is not offered most of all. He asks what she wants from him, and what she fears to lose. She responds honestly that she wants his key before taking a swig, 
relieved to find that the bottle contained red wine. She tells him that if he gives her that, he can take whatever he wants, after he drinks. The Red Lord sneers back at her and says that they are going to adore her, and she will not enjoy it, before downing his flagon. The other voice then speaks, saying that the Red Lord has sunk to the occasion magnificently. The Lord staggers to his feet again and says that the bill has come due at last, and that's his cue to leave. He stood and began stumbling away as the voice says that he's always the last to quit the party. The Red Lord gasps out that it's his nature, before his orifices run black and he falls forward to the floor. The voice yawns that he keeps his key in the till and that drunks are so predictable. Ibanez says that it could have told her that from the start to save her a bit of tension. It responds that there was nothing to it. Slaughter into wine and back again, basic as alchemy gets. She takes a red rusted key from the register and departs. In Corbinic, Okori's mind boggled as she watched the scene around her, as an array of impossible vessels swarmed in the area, ranging from sleek designs of colorful metal kept aloft by repulsors to unfathomably vast capital ships like something out of Star Wars. Dichotomy offered two soaring skylines, one stretching towards the trio of moons and the other hanging over the wastes like a melted cake. The upper hull was orange and the lower hull was blue, wrapped around a central cavity glowing with radiated white, although the light was dying due to the hanged king. There was a constant musical tone like the shattering of wine glasses, and every science fiction laser sound effect she'd ever heard, plus some new ones, rang out as the Three Moons Initiative tried desperately to remove the Hanged King's Shroud. Meanwhile, the White Lord was still approaching along the octopus, and they were out of room. She was about to suggest levitating them across the gap, when suddenly a polished chrome carrier arrived at the tentacle's tip, dropping a long landing ramp down. A lone woman in simple military dress strode out, and for a horrible moment, Akori thought she was going to meet her mother. The woman was too tall, her eyes too dark, and her expression too displeased for that to be the case, though. She stuck out a hand, and Okori shook it, with the woman declaring that this is her fault. Okori nods and says that she doesn't know how scientific their spaceships are, but if they're even a little bit magic, they're only flying because of her. The woman suddenly smiled and says that that's a hell of a thing to take credit for. The Foundation kills magic, she D&Ds it back slow as molasses, and now they're supposed to be thankful? She backs back up the ramp and says that the impenetrable thinks she might be useful, referring to the hostile reality bender that works with the three moons. It's said that they should dump her in dichotomy if she somehow found her way here. She's not sure if she wants to take the risk, however. Okori says that they risked a lot to get here, and they can help, 
But the woman laughs and says, more like sacrificed, as she may have walked in on her own two feet, but her friend clearly came feet first. Akori looks at her father, who looks back with an expression of calm resignation. The woman then raises an arm as the White Lord began saying that his work here is done. The woman then drops her arm and a battery of guns pelts the White Lord, the mask and empty robe dropping off the tentacle like a stone and feather. The woman tells them to get on board, and they'll see if she's worth the ammo. Ibanez had now passed through the Wastrel's Gate into the Phlegmatic Quarter, the final stretch of the city before the palace. Here the streets were clean and silent, and the layout was simple and direct. Ibanez thought it too direct, with every line seeming to terminate before its time, every angle too acute, and she felt a panic attack coming on as she made her way towards the stronghold on the horizon. The Alagadans in this quarter walked through the streets in soundless procession, marching in neat rows with their heads bowed. The voice muses in her head that it remembers the parade, the joy in the eyes of the assembled throng, their hopeful faces exposed to the heavens, the madness in their twisted smiles, the march of their naked feet upon the corpses of their betters. Ibanez remarks that it sounds like a real Mardi Gras, but the voice continues, saying that they fell on it like a pack of ravening animals. They were bred to docility, but spurred to violence by fears and hatreds which could not subside but only fester and grow. They ground it to dust against the cobbles it had laid, laid in the knowledge that it would one day be ground against them. Ibenez says that's a little weird, but the voice replies that she has never ruled a city. She has never known what it is to own the lives of men, to warp their minds, to boil away their pretenses and accretions and their hollow projections of what they want to be until the rotten core of what they truly irrevocably are is all that remains, in the knowledge that it won't be enough that they will not be able to handle the revelation of their selves, that they will rise up in anger and tear you down. She has never given anyone a gift such as that, and she has never known true love. Ibanez could see the final gate ahead of her, already open, and says that these people killed it because it was horrible, and it feels nostalgic about that. It responds that when you have lived as long as it has, so long and so fully, you cultivate more sensitive tastes. There is nothing sweeter in all the worlds than knowing you have laid the groundwork for a cruel, vicious, bloody revenge on the ones you have led to wrong you. It smiled as they dashed its faceless visage against the stones and tread its innards through the streets of Alagada that was, because it could already taste their viscera in its mouth hear their cries for mercy in its ears, feel the rising warmth in its bosom as it pronounced them doomed and damned. It has aged its anticipation to a fine vintage, and today it will drink deeply of the sorrow of its friends. Ibanez then walks through the tyrant's gate, 
and into the shadows of the hanged king's home. Okori and her father stood on the surface of dichotomy, listening to the hanged king speak. He was saying that he will break the fulcrum of worlds, and he will sit no throne, but flit between the cracks. Okori remarks that he's chatty, but she was barely able to choke the words out, her levity having no lift in the airless space around the hanged king. Her father, now dressed in Three Moons military attire, responded that he spent who knows how long chained to a chair, and she'd be chatty too. Okori looked at the multiversal aperture created by Dichotomy, fancying that she could see stars and perhaps the surface of the moon in flickering instants. She then looked up at the far hull, noticing that the two halves of the fortress were not connected. The aperture ring floated between them on the strength of their metaphysical surface tension alone. She saw orange-robed monks standing on the bottom of the orange half, and their counterparts in blue, all standing around and staring at the hanged king as he beat fruitlessly at the door between dimensions. He bellowed out that he will not be denied, as he is himself denial and finality. A spray of fume in the shape of a tremendous clawed hand swatted out at a pair of planes, clipping their wings off and causing them to cartwheel out of sight below the artificial horizon. The Three Moons' fleet was still attacking the cloud, but the battle seemed hopeless as tendrils of rippling black flesh tore through the windows, doors, and walls, probing and searching for something. The Hanged King tells the group that if they appease him, they will be the first to fall. But if they resist, he will show them what he has learned of suffering since ages before their worlds glimmered in creation's eye. Okori sat down and says that she's not sure what she's supposed to do here, as there's an unchained god tearing reality apart, and she's just a demon spawn with no underwear. Her father sat down next to her and tells her that she's never been just anything, and she doesn't need him to tell her that. She's stronger than anyone he's ever known, and she's good. That flame bearer walked out of the croaking cave for her, and they don't do that. A god crawled out of its tomb for her, and an ex-Foundation Three Moons general gave her the time of day. Game recognizes game. He claps her on the shoulder and assures her that she'll meet the challenge. He knows she will. Her eyes blur with tears, and she hears the voice of the White Lord telling her to follow the thread and unravel it. Pull it taut and measure it end to end. Know the awful extent what she loses. She shakes her head multiple times, before eventually saying that she remembers Humbaba from the Epic of Gilgamesh. When he looks at someone, it is the look of death. She says that the Foundation can never resist putting clues in their euphemisms. Her father finally says that everyone dies, in our beds, in our cars, in hospitals, or the shower, or the side of the road. Everyone dies, and it usually doesn't mean a thing. We die alone, 
our minds lost, our loved ones far away even if they're right beside us. He takes her hands in his and continues, saying that he had a chance for something better and something nobler. He could speak to her, tell her what he told her, and spend one final day beside her. If that wasn't a good enough death, what kind of life must he have led? Okori was tired, very tired, and she wanted to tell him that, wanted him to make it okay. She stood up and pulled him into an embrace, telling him to wait here for her, as this isn't goodbye. She releases the hug and casts a spell before striding into the Hanged King's cloud. Ibanez, meanwhile, was inside of the Palace of Alagada, the home of the Hanged King. The halls were empty of life, and her footsteps rang hollow. The echoes didn't travel far, swatted down by the oppressive gloom which cloaked each iron stanchion, the rows of blank, moth-eaten banners and the yawning arches to empty rooms. The palace was a monument to a monarch who had failed, then fallen, then fled, and the dying people who had once been its thralls now shunned these collapsing corridors. The voice announces that he is still here, causing Ibanez to stop. She asks who, and the response comes from the ambassador of Alagada, whom she had believed had been destroyed during her first trip here. The ambassador says that she now crawls back to his tomb, when once she had the sense to run. The sound of his voice in her skull nearly causes her to drop to her knees in pain, but she continues through two tremendous iron doors, wrought with whispering sigils and legions of faceless soldiers. She crosses into the throne room, noting that she had been here before and she had not. There were two Alagadas, one dim and one dark, connected by a pit of rot in the shape of a dead god at the core of the palace. The empty throne was covered not in rusted chains or spikes or blood, but simply the dust of long centuries of neglect. The shadows were merely shadows, not the unnatural extensions of an unnaturally extended unliving beast that called itself a king. A staggering shape emerged from those shadows, and Ibanez drew her weapon. The ambassador says that the curse flows through the space between spaces, firmament and never-meant alike aglow with stolen light. Life returns to the dead city, breath by breath. The ambassador is bundled in white bandages, black skin peeking between the creases, and Ibanez responds that she really hoped he was dead. She checks the safety on her gun and mentally counts the rounds, knowing that none of it really mattered. The ambassador says that it was, and is, and always shall be. He was moving towards her erratically, and a shaft of grey light streaming down from above illuminated why. Its head was still twisted around, and it was walking backwards. She reaches across her chest for her bag, telling the ambassador that she has a gift for him, a tribute to the new king of nowhere. 
The ambassador wheezes and says that he'll take everything she has, assassin, and then he'll take her. He tells her to fire her weapon and spend the opportunity, as she will not see another. She says that one is plenty, snapping off a single shot into the heel of the ambassador's right boot, causing it to shatter, and he lurches forward in surprise. She pulls a mask out of her bag, rips the bandages off of its head, and slams it onto the ambassador's face. The mask, as well as the voice she's been hearing, belong to SCP-035, and it tells the ambassador to swallow its tears for 10,000 years, or perhaps 11,000. As a bit of background, SCP-035 was originally the Black Lord of Alagada before being exiled to Earth to end up in Foundation containment. On Earth, it appeared as a white porcelain mask that constantly secretes a highly corrosive and degenerative viscous liquid. While Ibanez was defeating the Ambassador, Okori was conversing with the Hanged King himself. He shouts out that he will cross the divide again of his own unbroken will. His chains are broken, his fetters shattered, and he is no slave. Okori asks that this is what he's doing with it, and the smoke of the cloud parts to reveal a hovering figure in rotted black robes. The king says that he was torn from his home, from his people, from his very body. He will have that which was stolen from him, and all the earth besides. She quips that he's living his best life, and the figure drew closer to her, allowing her to see its ragged face, a clotted mass of scars and boils and burns and bleeding gashes, a mass of twitching feelers like maggots crawling beneath cadaverous skin, a face no mask in creation could hide. She says that all that power, all that strength, to even be able to form a complete sentence after what he's been through, he must have an iron trap for a mind, and yet he's stuck in a single moment. The Hanged King continues to smash against the hulls of Dichotomy, but roars out that he is free, and he will wreak freedom across the lands he has lost. She asks if he really doesn't grasp why the aperture won't change for him, and why he can't make it show him anything but static. He knows that it isn't the people here doing it, as he's sunk his hooks in, and they're focused on the earth like they've never focused before, yet the door still will not open. The Hanged King's voice was like a buzzing of cicadas in her mind, and he says that the King of Alagada does not answer to her. Rather, all eternity will answer for his suffering, and this obstruction only piles the pyre, She shakes her head, amazed at how calm she was while talking to the Hanged King himself. She sarcastically mentions his suffering, and he tells her not to mock him, as she knows nothing of his torment. A teacher from a foreign land has shown him the limits of flesh and spirit. They tore him from the drowned fastness of his sobbing vault of iron, and ran him through with the cruel lance of hope. 
He danced at the end of a chain for them and gained only an understanding. There is no love. There is no life. There is only the breaking, the creativity of uncreation. She scoffs at him, saying that he sat in darkness for how long, and his follow-up move is to rage in the light, but still going nowhere. The Hanged King grew even angrier, and says that he is going everywhere. Every corner of every earth will know what it is to be silent, be still, be static in the face of change. He will walk among them, and he will laugh. Okori laughed herself which seemed to cause the Hanged King to wither momentarily, and she asks what the hell he knows about change. He messed up an entire city, ruined all their lives, damned all their souls, and then nothing, since time immemorial. He talks about a pool of tears, but they've gone stagnant, and he's still drowning in them. That's why he's not going anywhere, because there's no tension within him, He's still chained to that throne in Alagada, and he's never going to leave. He has no hopes, no dreams, no soul, and he's just a dead husk with a city-shaped accretion of hate built up around it. There's nowhere for him to go but back in the cage. The king responds that he will not return to Alagada, shoving her back, as there is nothing there. It is finished. It is the past and he is the future. She gasps out that he is a broken thing, and he's fleeing the things that broke him. All his power and strength, and he's using it to lie to himself and hide from the horrors that even he fears. The lords of Alagada have fallen, and his city is waiting for him. The king says that he spits on his city, as it offers him nothing. Okori hoped against all hope that the answer she had to give was correct, and replies that it offers him closure. The White Lord of Alagada then appeared, standing on the edge of Dichotomy, its thin mouth twisting to an almost mirthful grimace. The Hanged King stared him down, and then with a sound like the rustling of dead leaves, abandoned the portal, allowing Okori to crawl away. In the palace, Ibanez remarks that she should have opened it by now, so something must be wrong. The Black Lord says that everything is wrong where the Master is concerned, so maybe he should cut his losses. Or cut her. She sticks her tongue out at him and tells him to call her back when he's not moonwalking everywhere. With a sickening crunch, the masked head swivels around, and says that she really did a number on this body before commenting on the fine shape hers is in. He's interrupted by a flash of gray sparks, and the appearance of a wall of static the size of a swimming pool popping into existence behind the throne. The static resolved into a nonsensical image of a tunnel of orange and blue, black smog and a green sky, and two robed figures approaching one another. There was also the haggard vision of Udo Okori, who spoke one word, help. Meanwhile, the hanged king seethed at the white lord, calling him a turncoat and demanding he pay his obeisance. The white lord, however, was not intimidated, 
and tells the king that he comes with good tidings, the news that the king is no longer needed. The hanged king spat out a swarm of dusky hornets, which washed over the unflinching white lord, telling him that he will return him to dust, and the wind may take him. The white lord howls that it is the wind, the breath of change, slow and deliberate, the rush of knowing, the wheel that turns. The king's gestation ends today, and today he is truly a god. He tells him to take up his mantle in the stars and spread his will across the cosmos, and to tarry not in Alagada. The king swipes at the white lord, knocking him to the deck. He says that he is not the credulous fool who dined on Hemlock in the Feast of Words, and the white lord has no truth for him. The king suddenly fell and briefly burst before reforming at a breathless kneel. He asks in a shocked tone what this is, to which the White Lord responds, Doubt. The warlock girl has crippled him with her perfidy and deceit. He tells the king to destroy her and leave the dead to the crows. The crossroads of the universe stands before him, and he should choose a new path. The king was wreathed in ash and cinders as he hammered against dichotomy, his fists exploding into dust over and over again. He says in a thin voice that he cut him, and he bled him, and he bleeds. The white lord rasps out for him to bleed, but Okori interrupts by saying, With this, your blood, it is the hanged king's before flinging a goblet of viscous black liquid into the White Lord's face. He shrieks in pain and tears at his eyes with blackened sleeves, howling and raging as he crashes to the deck. The Hanged King rose again, turned to Okori, and asks why. She shrugs and says that the choice wasn't the White Lord's or hers, it's his. The portal was open to Alagada, and she tells him that his servants await him, if he wants a second chance. Her father runs out from the crowd towards the fallen lord and kicks his mask off, sending it skittering across toward the Hang King. The king picks up the mask and stares at Okori, asking her if the faithful exile has returned. She nods so he says that he will go to Alagada and see what changes he might make. He begins gliding towards the aperture, and she looks towards her father, who remarks that he told her. She made a noise halfway between joy and despair, and says that she opened the thing herself. He smiled at her and says that of course she did. She's twice the spirit that empty husk could ever be. She knows who she is, and she's not lying to herself, nor is he lying to her either. Not anymore. That's not the only reason it opened for her, though, as she's torn between two places. She wants to go back with her friend, but she also wants to stay here with him, and she can't do both. She says she knows, and he says that she has to go, to which she also says that she knows. 
He tells her that she has to go now, while she's still unsure, otherwise the gate will close. He hands her the White Lord's robe, pulls her into a tight embrace, and eventually tells her to go home. He then wraps the robe around her, as living matter couldn't pass through the veil around Corbinic, but the robe of the White Lord exuded an impervious shield of unlife. He walks her to the portal, and smiles in the face of her tears. She asks him if he'll be okay, knowing that it's a stupid question, as she just had to hear him lie to her if only one more time. He laughs and says that she found him in the desert and brought him to the end, so that's the hard part over. In the palace of Alagata, Okori drops the filthy robe to the floor and embraces Ibanez, her father watching for a moment through the open aperture before turning and walking away. Okori sobs that it was a stupid, stupid plan, and Ibanez asks if that was her dad, but she replies that they don't have time. The Black Lord then says that he was hoping to surprise them, and they see him standing beside the Hanged King, sitting slumped over on the throne. A myriad of tiny, faceless creatures were pulling chains and singed ropes across his motionless body. The Black Lord says that dimensional travel is so very draining, and his liege lord needs his rest. Akori approaches and says that she thought he was the faithful one, to which the Black Lord responds that he is, as they would have let him rot for all eternity, while he only plans on taking the lead for an eon or two. The Red and Yellow Lords both step into the light, and the Black Lord says that they're all on the same page, and they're going to do some exploring, as he eyed the portal hungrily. Ibanez says that they're welcome and not to call them, but the Black Lord asks why he would need to call them, as they're not going anywhere. Okori growls that she could seal the aperture and not to test her, but the Black Lord laughs and says that he has worn enough mortals to know better. She would lose so much if she shut that door, as she'd never be able to open it again. Okori curses at him, and the Black Lord lunges at the two. Okori chucks two fistfuls of Corbinic sand into his face, and the aperture snaps shut. Ibanez claps her hands, and the door located in the floor beneath them under centuries of dust and dried tears opens up, dropping Okori and Ibanez into another world, their own. The Black Lord wipes his face clean and flicks a mass of sand onto the walls, congratulating the two. Back at Foundation Mission Control, they observed SCP-179, now pointing towards Mars instead, and the Three Moons drone was gone. Dr. Barnard comments that he guesses they've got bigger fascists to fry. Back in Alagata, the Royal Astronomer was telling the Black Lord that Okori didn't really shut the aperture, she just moved it into the sky. The Lord looked through the telescope and saw the aperture to Corbinic sizzling in the yellow sky. There was something else there as well, and he asks the astronomer if she knows the code with the flashing lights. As it happened, she did, and she translated the Morse code message as, Change your ways, 
This is a warning shot. A beam of intense energy then arced from the aperture, vanishing for an instant before burning a glowing red hole in the Black Lord's forehead. He fell to the observatory tiles, bleeding black blood and melted porcelain, gurgling softly. The astronomer looked back through the telescope, seeing more flashes. She translated the second message as, Consider yourselves warned. Thus ends the path of the warlock. With all four temporal paths completed, we can finally view the last part of the SCP-6500 file, titled Crossroads. In Temporal Site 01, protected from changes in time by the most powerful temporal sink the Temporal Anomalies Department would ever develop, Director Ilsa Reinders sat at her desk, trying to cure a mild headache. In her centuries with the Foundation, she has discovered the extensive interactions undergirding temporal mechanics, and the few rules to which they adhere. Of these, the rule which always holds true is the existence of precisely one prime timeline, the most stable of the full set, the trunk from which all doomed branches originate, the key to all the time travel technology the Foundation has ever developed. And yet, there were no indications that either one of these two new timelines were suffering a decline in ontokinetic health or stability, and the time stream seems disinclined to collapse into either state. It's because of this conundrum that she was sitting in her office with bloodshot eyes, staring at her desk terminal. She rereads the first of the recovered files carefully, the revised file for SCP-6500 from the Vanguard timeline. It describes the death of magic, an anomalous phenomena due to the containment efforts of the SCP Foundation, and the normalization protocols involve the dissolution of the Foundation, with Vanguard taking its place. The people of Earth will be gradually disabused of their Foundation-fostered notions of normalcy, and introduced both conceptually and literally where possible to the esoteric realities surrounding them. A full reassessment will determine which anomalies can be safely released, which can be destroyed, and which must be dealt with more delicately. The balance of known anomalies must not be contained, but the semantic limits of the concept of containment are not presently understood. Instead of securing, they will mitigate, but they will continue to protect. There is no more veil, and no more groups of interest. There are allies, and there are unfortunately still enemies. This is not the end of their work, but the beginning of a new phase. It is conceivable that no amount of corrective action will permanently arrest the SCP-6500 effect, and the task they set for themselves may be impossible. It is nevertheless Vanguard's responsibility, and most vital purpose, to try. Ilsa smiles at this, as she's an optimistic woman in spite of everything, but this is a tall order even for her. She begins writing out her report. It reads, Before the pivot, our lot was difficult. 
The SCP Foundation had millions of moving parts, and the methods we've put in place to keep them moving worked. Did they work well? Some, but not all. Did they exact a cost? Absolutely. Even before we realized that we were the cause of the calamity, we knew that what we were doing was not indefinitely sustainable. We kept doing it anyway, in the hopes that some ideal solution would come along and let us keep on keeping on. The O5 Council of TL001VG has taken a truly radical step in dissolving the Foundation, setting aside our entire modus vivendi in the hopes of finding a better way. It is brave, but it is also a tremendous risk. Protecting the world taxed the Foundation's resources to their limit, and at times only the most draconian of measures kept our heads above water. Can we be both safe and free? This entire timeline is a test case for that question. There is reason to be hopeful, however. I have read enough VNP files, the replacement for the old SCP format, to see the new normalization protocols at work. And they do work, in most cases, as though the anomalous was only as prejudicial to the mundane as the mundane was to the anomalous. This goes against all our organizational logic since the formation of the old foundation, but I can't argue with the results. Furthermore, Vanguard no longer has to defend itself and its mission against the people it aims to protect, so those people can actually help with said defense. It is perhaps this change from individual to collective responsibility, and the holistic approach to normal and paranormal relationships, which has ensured the stability of TL001VG. She thinks to herself that it sounds bad. It is bad, but she's still smiling when she finishes. She says aloud, Change. The Vanguard timeline summed up in one simple, powerful word. She then opens up the second file, and stops smiling. This is the file for SCP-6500 from the Threshold timeline, in which the containment procedures state that SCP-6500 has ended and no further Foundation actions are required. Should it reoccur, the O5 Council will disseminate information on the proper use of esoteric artifacts to once again ameliorate it. It describes 6500 as a dramatic, short-term alteration in the sustainability of anomalous life and phenomena on Earth, and linked multiversal planes. The resultant waning of thaumaturgical effects and the failure of esoteric physics resulted in the neutralization of a sizable portion of the SCP database, and a significant die-off of anomalous species and monotypes. The Records and Information Security Administration is preparing an exhaustive catalog of these losses, and the database will be adjusted accordingly. The cause of 6500 is unknown, with groups of interest opposed to the Foundation engaging in a disinformation campaign, painting the Foundation's actions as the trigger for the event, but there is no evidential basis supporting these claims. Ilsa grimaces with one timeline of pie-in-the-sky dreamers and one full of denial. 
the arrogance of that file's final paragraph makes her head spin, as she can't imagine anyone on the Foundation's payroll is stupid enough to believe that they had nothing to do with the impasse. She continues her report, writing, There were two options on the ballot for Administrative Proposal 6500 Omega, and neither was really a commitment to inaction. There was good reason to believe that stopgap measures would be temporarily effective at managing the effects of the Phoenix class event. The four artifacts recovered during the latter days of the crisis have seemingly halted the mass die-offs and disappearances, and restored something vaguely like equilibrium to the anomalous world. There is, however, no reason to believe that these actions did anything but defer a more definite solution to a later date. Although the Foundation remains intact, it has nevertheless been dragged out of the shadows and into something resembling the light. Various groups of interest in TL001TH are fully aware of the Foundation's complicity, and they are not happy. The daily grind can only become more difficult as inaction becomes less and less acceptable. Additional artifacts are still being discovered, however, and the O5 Council have seemingly pinned their hopes on this approach. They rely on individual ingenuity and the possibility that their planet is packed with unlikely solutions to a thoroughly unmanageable organizational lifestyle. In the shadows, however, there are stronger trends towards change even in this less changeable timeline. Signs that covert action is being taken by certain Foundation staff members to ensure that there is always someone trying to turn the tide, even when organizational change has been thoroughly stymied. Though I have doubts that it will be tenable in the long term, I credit the present stability of TL001TH to this final element alone, rather than the ongoing search for panacea. The decisions made by the O5 Council and the final vote of the Mediator have defined these two timelines in such perfect opposition that they can no longer be reconciled. It is tempting to speculate on the motives of the voters in each case, of course. TL001VG was seemingly born in a flash of hope for the future, not for some improbable happy ending, but for a world that would not end. Maintaining the status quo would eventually doom our anomalous Earth to death, tear apart the interconnected web of life. All those long years of turning a cynical eye on every offer of aid, every cry for help, every damaged or dying thing, of refusing to change our methods to suit our circumstances, of fighting a thousand battles on every possible front, must have weighed heavily on their consciences in the end. Did O513 see the writing on the wall? On the other hand, TL001TH may have been born from caution, apathy, or something in between. Perhaps the cost of change had been deemed too great the solution too difficult to put into place. Perhaps the threat hadn't seemed severe enough to make it worthwhile. There could have been doubts about the pariah's proposal, about their motives, about the advisability of taking rash action on a sensitive issue. Not everything in the database was a murder monster, after all. 
and the clinical language of each file often masked a very human relationship between the researchers and the researched. Their cries for change could have sounded like appeals to emotion to the mediator's presumably impartial ear. Did 0513 judge the Foundation the lesser of two evils? In both realities, there were six votes for change, and six votes against. One overseer broke the tie, and broke the time stream too. They made a decision, and became the pivot point. Whatever their reasons, whether they were right or wrong, what happens next is the immediate result of their inclination to act. There will be consequences either way. Vanguard will face the Herculean task of remaking human society to fit the facts of paranormal life, while the SCP Foundation will find it harder every day to pretend that the matter is under control, that their beds aren't burning. She notes to herself that her prose is getting florid, and remembers that there's still one more file to review, one that she hasn't had the guts to look at yet. The file describes SCP-6500 as not having any single definition yet accepted by the O5 Council. No containment procedures have been set, as without a clear understanding of the event's nature, it is impossible to act upon it. Recommendations for further study have been placed before the Council, but they remain deadlocked, and the file will be updated when a verdict is reached. That file never got updated, as this was the timeline where 0513 chose not to make any choice on the vote, leaving it a tie. That timeline no longer existed, and she wondered why before suddenly realizing. She finishes her report, writing, It isn't a pivot if nobody moves. That simple fact so pithy and so literal, is the only possible explanation for the persistence of these two new baseline realities and the collapse of the static alternative. One world will grow, and the other will stagnate, but the only other option was simple oblivion. Whatever their policies and politics and personal preferences, Neither version of 0513, whose reality survived, refused to take responsibility for what happened next. One judged continuity paramount, and trusted that the problem could be solved without changing the system. One judged the system the problem, and promised to do better. Two irreconcilable poles, two causes forever separating the worlds which are their effects. I theorize that timelines, like civilizations, need momentum to stay the course. This may sound unscientific, and it may sound unprofessional, but it's what the evidence supports. I choose to believe that choice, that action, is the key. Ilsa shuts things down, as that's enough for one day, and there will be more to do tomorrow in every world that still spins on. She submits her report, and the final text reads, You did not fade, you did not fail, but made a choice and tipped the scale. Two journeys out of joint diverge beyond the point of no return. 
And that's SCP-6500, the longest single article on the site. Although to be fair, it's really more like nine different articles combined together with a shared thread. It seems that both timelines ended up working out, each with their own problems, but each prevailed due to choosing their direction and sticking to it. I'd like to take a brief moment to congratulate the myriad of authors and artists that put all of SCP-6500 together, and recommend that if you liked these videos to read the actual article yourselves sometime to fully appreciate the art and writing. While it's true that the SCP universe started out with a number of disparate articles that each looked at an anomalous phenomena, the growing universe of connected characters and locations is one of my favorite aspects of it, and SCP-6500 was a great showcase of how wild this universe can be.